Evidence-Based Radio, still coming at you from quarantine, because even if everyone else thinks the pandemic is done, I am still of the opinion that until we have at least a new booster, I'm going to continue to be wary. Now, as always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So we are once again going to blissfully pretend that there are no infectious diseases still raging across the country. I don't have anything new or interesting to say about either this week, so we're just going to skip it. What we're going to do instead is start with a story about accessibility in science. Now, this isn't something that a lot of people probably think about. We don't think about accessibility pretty much anywhere. Um, I know that I've noted before, I'm sure, on this show that... Um, my place of business is notoriously bad for accessibility, and um, the building I work in is supposed to be one of the most accessible, and um, that is that is a, a damning with faint praise right there. Um, <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, and so one of the things that we do think about when it comes to uh, STEM and uh, access is, of course, you know, there's been a big push to encourage women and uh, young girls to really start to engage in STEM at an early age and to pursue careers, which is amazing and great. But for people who are deaf or blind or have a myriad of other accessibility needs, science can be a really tough career. But luckily for all of us, some people do brave the difficulties in order to pursue a career in science. Of course, science, science benefits from diversity in real, tangible ways. It's the reason we want women to pursue science. It's the reason we want people of color to pursue science. It's the reason we want people who have accessibility needs to pursue science. Because we need people who can look at science from all different kinds of perspectives. And we know that in the past, having science be largely a domain of uh, white, Euro-centric uh, uh, men has not been great, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and so not only do we want to really, um, you know, and able-bodied, I should say, as well, obviously. And so I think that it's really important that we look at extending science to all sorts of people across the spectrum of all aspects of the diversity of human nature. And so this is a really cool story about a way in which that might be helped. And so part of 
why this is so important is because it can help researchers, the same researchers who work on these things, it can help them do their own work better. And so, you know, when you have people who have um, accessibility issues in science, then they can say, hey, these are the things that I need and even work on them. And then others who come after them will already have those tools available to them. Now, one such scientist is postdoc Matthew Guberman Pfeffer, a physical chemist at, y- at Yale, who has very limited vision. In order to read a scientific paper, he must download a PDF, copy this into a separate text file, and then use a text reader, which often for one thing, doesn't really understand scientific terminology. So he has to have it on a very uh, slow setting so that he can puzzle out what it's trying to puzzle out. And depending on the formatting of the original, it sometimes uh, produces garbled uh, paragraphs. Sometimes it reads out all of the reference numbers and sometimes stops mid-sentence for an advertisement. But the real challenge is images. There's nothing a screen reader can do for that. Now, because he has some vision, he can blow up images of graphs or diagrams a thousand percent and see small fractions at a time, which he can then try to piece together into a coherent whole. But usually he just hopes that there's enough detail in the description in order to understand the results of the graph or the diagram. But now, that might be changing. Guberman Pfeffer has teamed up with cited Baylor University biochemist Brian Shaw and his team, as well as fellow limited vision scientists, including Mona Minkara, a chemistry and bioengineering faculty member at Northeastern University, to develop a way to 3D print visual data in a way that is fast and easy to interpret without having to have the image be visual. Shaw previously worked on 3D modeling of proteins using gummy bear gel and non-toxic resin in order for students to use their mouths and tongues as the tactile source of information. Apparently, your tongue is better than your fingers at uh, interpreting tactile information. So that's pretty interesting. And so uh, Shaw's son is blind. And so he has become passionate about helping him and others with similar challenges to be able to experience the wonders of science. Because that's another thing, too, is that even if you're not a scientist, you know, if you want to be able to read a scientific paper and you have accessibility issues, this is the same um, thing. And it can be really helpful to bring this into the uh, public sphere as well. And so the new work focuses on a rather old technique for creating visual media called lithophanes. Some evidence suggests that they were first made in the 6th or 7th century in China during the Tang Dynasty dynasty, from very thin porcelain or wax. But they became a real phenomena in Europe in the 1820s. 
They are basically very thin, translucent engravings. When you hold them up to the light, the thicker regions appear darker and the thinner regions lighter, creating a sort of backlit painting or photo uh, image. Shah's team was originally making 3D graphics when a student suggested making them thinner so that they would print more quickly and use less resin. They initially thought they'd actually invented a cool new technology. (laughs) It was only after a bit of research that they found out that this was indeed an older technology. But that doesn't at all detract from the fact that they have found a really new way in which this old technology can be used in order to actually help people. And so, yeah, um, the lithothanes can be shown to have both the same data for a visual person and for a person who is sight impaired. And so basically, when the sighted person holds it up, they see the image. And then when a person who has visual impairment is able to touch it and the raised um, areas give them the same kind of data. Now, the next step is for making lithophanes a cornerstone of teaching. And so again, this would allow both sighted and vision impaired students to benefit from the technology. And of course, 3D printer technology has become more affordable and widespread. And so this could actually really be a viable um, thing that could end up in a lot of teaching spaces. And it's really, really cool. Now, the group is excited about the prospect of developing software to create lithophanes that is also accessible because that's a big deal too. And so they want uh, people who have accessibility needs to be able to create their own lithophanes um, in order to then do their own work. And so, yeah. It's pretty exciting um, and was really, it's really a neat idea. Um, And of course, it's great to apply an old technology to a new problem. Now, um, it's a bit long, but I want to read you this quote from the conclusion of the paper because I think it holds so much truth um, and is so important. People with blindness have been historically discouraged from learning chemistry and have been kept out of the laboratory. The irony of this ableism is nanoscale. Atoms and molecules are smaller than 250 nanometers, which happens to be the diffraction limit of visible light. This mismatch is why we are all blind to molecules. It is partly why an atom in a molecule has been described as a Kantian noumenon, unknowable by observation but conceivable by reason. To try and see something about them, we must use spectroscopy, microscopy, or painstakingly grow crystals that diffract x-rays, or neutrons, or electrons. Even then, we must blind ourselves, we must build ourselves artificial eyes 
to detect how photons, neutrons, and electrons interact with atoms and molecules. Then, after lastly getting a peek at the atomic world, scientists eagerly make graphical diagrams to show us what they saw. G. Lewis and his dot structures, J. Richardson's ribbon diagrams, and C. Leventhal's computer graphics. Taking one final step to make this imagery accessible to all people is now easier than ever. The types of lithophanes described here can be produced by any science department at any university or in any high school science laboratory or classroom. The lithophane data format, LDF, is by no means limited to pictures in science. Lithophanes can be used in the inclusive design of imagery throughout the fine arts, economics, humanities, business, government, health sciences, and law. So that's a pretty revolutionary idea. And um, I think it's an example of science at its very best. And so, yeah, I am very excited to share that story. And hopefully we will start to see lithophanes be uh, accessible to people and um, to start being a real part of science education in order to make science education easier and more accessible for all people, regardless of their accessibility needs. So yeah, I like starting off with something that's just really good and wholesome sometimes. (laughs) Um, We're actually going to be talking about fun, interesting things for the entire entirety of tonight. So this is going to be an upbeat one, um, which I could definitely use because I have been very stressed out as of late. Um, It turns out uh, turning on a new computer system uh, is a lot of stress, uh, especially when a lot of the knowledge of how things are supposed to work is locked in your own head and uh, needs to be able to be communicated to others. And um, if you've ever had to do that, sometimes it just feels like it's more work to teach other people. And so you just do it yourself and then you just keep doing things yourself. And um, yeah, so let's just have a relaxing night where we talk about some really interesting science. All right. And so... Obviously, that is super exciting to uh, give the ability for those with optical difficulties to be able to better understand the written word as well as visualizations of data. But it turns out that there's actually some things that we have not yet understood about the origins of even the printed word itself. Now, it may come as no surprise that Johannes Gutenberg was not the first person to employ movable type. It was, in fact, rather ancient Asian people who created movable type using woodblocks called xylography by 600 CE. Researchers have now looked at two early printed texts using high-powered x-rays created by the synchrotron at Slack National Accelerator Laboratory in California in order to better understand how they were produced. Synchrotron is one of my favorite words, by the way. It's just such a good word to say. (laughs) And it's such a neat thing um, to have these, you know, 
basically incredible uh, accelerators that just, um, you know, are able to create these high powered x-rays that can do all of these amazing things with all sorts of artifacts and, um, you know, texts and all sorts of things to do this um, work is just so cool. Um, and it's really awesome to be able to use cutting edge technology in order to explore the world of really ancient um, material production. And so one question is whether Gutenberg's press was a complete reinvention or if he was aware of the Asian development of movable type. Because, of course, as we all know, there was a lot of information uh, sharing between parts of the world, even in the deep past. Um, while most people didn't really go much of anywhere, there was still deep flow of information between different parts of the world. And um, obviously there were several uh, major uh, bodies of conquerors who moved across large swaths of the Eurasian continent, especially and with them, they would have brought different material cultures, different information, different, uh, all sorts of things, foods, um, you know, uh, techniques for doing all sorts of things. Like people were not, uh, as isolated and stagnant as we often, uh, think of them as having been. And so the researchers looked at two pages of a Gutenberg Bible that was dismantled in the early 1920s. <sighs> oh my goodness. Let's, let's not talk about, um, antiquarians at all ever because it's too depressing. Anyways. And the other is a set of pages from the spring and autumn annual annals, sorry, which is a Korean example from 1442 that features some writings of Confucius. It is undisputed that the Chinese and Koreans had invented a movable type print much earlier than Gutenberg, says Uwe Bergman, a physicist at the University of Wisconsin and a member of the team. What we want to know is, how did it start? And did Go Gutenberg know? Did he know about the Korean early print or not? Was his invention completely separate or was it guided or influenced by other invention? Beyond those two works, they also looked at other Korean printings and Western historical documents, such as a copy of William Caxton's Canterbury Tales. Of especial interest to the researchers is, a, is the chemistry of the inks and what kind of metal was used to print the documents. We believe that we had an extremely productive first run, Bergman said. We were also happy to observe so much X-ray fluorescence signal of various elements in the inks and paper. Originally, we had not been sure if we would find any substantial signal, but we did. Previous work on documents has used various imaging methods to reveal comments invisible to the naked eye, including revisions to the Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson. The team had previously done X-ray fluorescence on the Archimedes palimpsest as well as a Syriac translation of Galen of Pergamon's On Simple Drugs. 
We've done what we can with the optical energy levels, and now we're turning to get more fundamental information with x-rays and x-ray fluorescent, said Michael Toth, an expert in x-ray imaging systems and a member of the team. This is to some extent much more difficult because we're not looking for hidden text. We're looking for information we can't gather from the text itself. According to Toth, it's been almost 40 years since a Gutenberg fragment has been imaged in this manner. As conservatives, conservators, we're always trying to understand the material culture we're tasked with caring for, said Kristen St. John, a conservator at Stanford University Libraries, who was part of the team responsible for making sure the documents were properly mounted for scanning so that they wouldn't be damaged, obviously. How things are made, the material uses in their creation, all of these things help us to preserve and make accessible these resources that we hold and that are being acquired for our audience of users, she noted. And so this is a work that is just beginning. Um, so I don't have a lot of details to tell you just yet. Uh, the team hopes to start discussing their findings next year. And they have a uh, goal date of 2027, um, where they'll be able to present a larger body of research that will illuminate the history of early bookbinding and printing. So, um, it's so, it's so unfortunate to have to wait for these things, but sometimes science takes a long time, um, because there's a vast amount of data that has to be processed and has to be interpreted. And, um, yeah. So I'm going to look forward to that uh, very much so because I'm really interested in uh, books just in all of their uh, myriad uh, aspects. Okay, so we are going to pivot now and uh, we're actually going to talk about a different kind of imagery and a different kind of uh, large-scale data collection. <laughs> So uh, the JWST is able to look not just out into the deep cosmos, but actually also at objects much closer to home, at least relatively. Uh, and so NASA has released two, frankly, rather stunning images of uh, Jupiter. And the images aren't just artistic showstoppers. They actually give scientists an incredibly detailed look at the structure of the planet's atmosphere, rings, and some of the inner moons, and also show the auroras, which is really cool. And just to kind of put this in perspective, the rings, for instance, are a million times fainter than the planet, but Webb's advanced imagers are able to capture them and allow for data processors to create these amazing images. Now, um, I'm not going to go over that too much because I actually just talked about that a couple weeks back, um, about how these images are created. And so the data was captured in late July using the telescope's near-infrared camera. We hadn't really expected it to be this good, to be honest. Um, they said in a news release accompanying the images, it's really remarkable that we can see details on Jupiter together with its rings, tiny satellites, and even galaxies in one image. 
And what's even more remarkable about this particular set of images is that they were actually produced by a citizen scientist. Judy Schmidt has no formal training in astronomy, but became interested in citizen science back in 2012 after entering an ESA contest that challenged citizen scientists to produce images from the Hubble called Hubble's Hidden Treasures. And uh, there's still a website for that that you can look at uh, the winners, and they're quite beautiful. Um, and so Schmidt actually came in third with a picture of Minkowski's butterfly, a planetary nebula in the direction of the constellation Ophiuchus. Sorry, I meant to look up how to pronounce that, and I completely forgot to. (laughs) Something about it just stuck with me, and I can't stop, she said. I could spend hours and hours every day. Her guiding philosophy is, I try to get it to look natural, even if it's not anything close to what your eye can see. But the image with Jupiter's rings and inner moon, with, for the image, she collaborated with Ricardo Hueso, a co-investigator on these observations who studies planetary atmospheres at the University of the Basque Country in Spain. The two have actually collaborated in the past on images of the Shoemaker Living Nine's Jupiter impact. Schmidt is looking forward to processing more data in the future from the JWST as well especially from star-producing regions. She's particularly drawn to young stars that produce powerful jets in small nebula patches called Herbig Harrow objects. I'm really looking forward to seeing these weird and wonderful baby stars blowing holes into nebulas, she said. And so to see the images and read the full press release, you can go to blogs nasa.gov slash web and I highly recommend it. Um, these images of Jupiter are absolutely gorgeous. Um, the I just I can't describe them. You have to go to uh, the blog and look at them because um, they are quite quite beautiful. Okay, we are going to take a moment. Um, cause I see it is that time when we should do some show promos and, uh, some PSAs. And when we come back, we're actually going to again talk about something from the JWST data. So, uh, come back for that. And, um, after that, we will do some updates from, uh, the Perseverance rover on Mars, one of our, uh, fan favorites around here. At least I'm a fan. (laughs) Okay, so please do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them, until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. 
Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXLJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back, and you are still listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so this time we are going to turn to the far reaches of the universe to talk about the JWST having found, officially, the first carbon dioxide on an exoplanet, WASP-39b. So there have been hints before from Hubble and from Spitzer, but there's never before been an actual yes. We can tell that there is carbon dioxide on this exoplanet. Now the planet is located in the Virgo constellation and is 20 times closer to its sun than Earth. It's about the same mass as Saturn, but it's less dense and around 50% larger, most likely due to the heating from being so close to its star. Natalie Batella, professor of astronomy and astrophysics at UC Santa Cruz, leads the team of astronomers that made the detection. Using the JWST to observe WASP-39b, which is around 700 light-years from Earth. 
Previous observations of this planet with Hubble and Spitzer had given us tantalizing hints that carbon dioxide could be present, Batalis said in a UC Santa Cruz press release. The data from JWST showed an unequivocal carbon dioxide feature that was so prominent that it was practically shouting at us. CO2 is important not only for detecting atmospheres around small, rocky planets, but also as an indicator of the overall abundance of heavy metals in the atmosphere of gas giants. Carbon dioxide is actually a very sensitive measuring stick, the best one we have, for heavy elements in giant planet atmospheres. So the fact that we can see it so clearly is really great, said co-author Jonathan Fortney, professor of astronomy and astrophysics at UCSC and director of the Other Worlds Laboratory. The ability to determine the amount of heavy elements in a planet is critical to understanding how it formed and will be able to use this carbon dioxide measuring stick for a whole bunch of exoplanets to build up a comprehensive understanding of giant planet composition which is pretty darn neat. Now, the data was collected during a transit when the planet passed in front of its star. This allows for data collection of starlight that passes through the atmosphere of the planet, allowing for computational data to be, compositional data to be gathered. They also detected a mystery element in the spectrum which will need more research. And there's actually going to be more data coming in. So they should be able to get a better um, handle on that in the near future, one hopes. Now, the researchers found that the planet had a metallicity, or how much metal is in the atmosphere, much like that of Saturn. Both have around 10 times the amount of heavy metals as their respective suns. That's super interesting, and we would love to know if all Saturn mass planets have the same metallicity, Fortney said. It was exciting to see this in another system because we didn't know what to expect when we went from the planets in our solar system to the atmospheres of exoplanets. When the data for the spectrum was released in July, the USCS exoplanet researchers were actually hosting 45 visiting astronomers for a summer program. We were all huddled around the laptop, getting our first look at the spectrum and marveling at it, Batalha said. It is a tremendous, almost euphoric feeling, seeing something for the first time that no other human has seen before. That's what science is all about. And I think that that is a great sentiment, and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the James Webb is so popular at the moment is that it is literally showing us things that no human has seen before. And, uh, you know, there isn't a lot of uh, that around these days. Uh, it sometimes feels, you know, there's lots of things we don't know about basic things, but that's more about, um, you know, data and, um, you know, idiosyncratic quirks about things. But getting to see actual images of objects in the universe that literally no one has seen before, that is pretty fantastic. Um, and I think 
that we should all be very grateful for the uh, image processors who take the data from uh, this telescope and actually create those visuals. Because again, um, you know, the telescope is not looking at them in the visual spectrum. And so there does have to be this um, interpretation and uh, visualization uh, processing. And, um, you know, once again, definitely go and look at the images. Uh, this is this last um, story. Obviously, they were looking at a spectra rather than actual like imagery data. But still, like, um, I'm I am absolutely astounded by those images of Jupiter. There's just so breathtaking. Um, and I hope that you feel the same way when you go and look at them. And so, yeah, I think that the James Webb, uh, for all of its, uh, naming faults is really going to be, um, a blockbuster, uh, telescope moving into the future. And, um, just, I can't even imagine what the next generation of technology will be, um, you know, if we don't manage to actually, like, <laughs> destroy our civilization, which, uh, some days it feels like that's, that's a distinct possibility. Um, <laughs> since this is supposed to be a, uh, calming and fun, uh, um, episode, I, uh, skipped a couple of things that I could have talked about where it's like, yeah, that's interesting, but I don't know that there's anything I, you or I could do about it. So it's best not even to think about it at the moment. <laughs> um, so anyways, we're going to leave that enigmatic, uh, statement right there. Um, and we are going to move back into the local solar system to talk about uh, everyone's favorite rover, Perseverance. And so a new paper, a new set of papers actually, published in Science Advances, details the results of ground-penetrating radar used by the rover to plumb the depths of Yezero Crater. Um, well, that's one of the papers. There are two other papers that we'll also uh, touch upon. And so the data comes from a delta on the western edge of the crater, where a river once fed the lake, leaving behind dirt and rock deposits. And so, of course, that's why we're in Yezero Crater, because we're pretty sure that there used to be a lake there and a river that created that delta. And obviously, the big uh, interest is in finding water and potentially microbes uh, the remains of microbes that would have lived in that water. We were quite surprised to find rocks stacked up at inclined, at an inclined angle, said David Page, a UCLA professor of Earth, Planetary, and Space Science Sciences, and one of the lead researchers on the Radar Imager for Mars Subsurface Experiment, or RIMFACS. We were expecting to see horizontal rocks on the crater floor. The fact that they are tilted like this requires a more complex geological history. They could have been formed when molten rock rose up towards the surface, or alternatively, they could represent an older delta deposit buried in the crater floor. 
Page notes that most of the evidence points to the rocks being igneous in origin, but they can't yet say for certain how the layers were formed. While moving through the crater, Percy has obtained a continuous radar image that shows the electromagnetic properties and bedrock stratigraphy of Yezero's ground to depths of around 49 feet. The data reveals the presence of ubiquitous layers of rock strata, including some that are inclined up to 15 degrees. And additionally, the most inclined areas also have rock that is highly reflective and tilt in multiple directions. They were not expecting that. RIMFAX is giving us a view of Mars stratigraphy similar to what you can see on Earth in highway road cuts, where tall stacks of rock layers are sometimes visible in a mountainside as you drive by, Page explained. Before Perseverance landed, there were many hypotheses about the exact nature and origin of the crater floor materials. We've now been able to narrow down the range of possibilities, but the data we've acquired so far suggests that the history of the crater floor may be quite a bit more complicated than we had anticipated. Which is actually pretty cool, because that means there's lots more science to do. And so this data is actually supported by other instrumental data from Percy. And so another of the papers talks about data from the SuperCam, which confirms that most of the rock is igneous rather than sedimentary. The SuperCam instrument suite of remote chemical and mineralogical tools on the Perseverance rover has made some exciting new detailed observations regarding the Yezero crater's history that could not be fully understood before landing, said Sam Clegg, Deputy Principal Investigator for SuperCam. This exciting new data will really help us better understand when the crater held water, and it also gives us insight into Mars's climate history. And while this comes as quite a surprise, it's actually a boon. Igneous rock is easier to date than sedimentary, and therefore will make dating the rock samples more accurate. The SuperCam data is obtained by using the instrument's focused infrared laser beam to remove dust and material from rock surfaces and capture an optical spectrum, which reveals the elements contained in the target up to around 25 feet away. The technique is called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. And so uh, one of the other things that is obviously happening with Percy is that Percy is collecting rock samples to return to Earth. Unfortunately, next decade, again, science. Find a way to do things faster. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's just like, but I want the information now. Um, and so David Schuster, professor of Earth and Planetary Science at the University of California, Berkeley, echoes the surprise at finding igneous cumulate rocks, rocks that formed by the cooling of molten magma. Magma. Anyways, the rocks found at two sites in the Seata region. Seata is the Navajo word for admit, ad, amidst the sand. And um, I apologize in advance if I um, 
mispronounce either that word or the other Navajo word that is coming up. Um, so I tried really hard to find a pronunciation for uh, those words, but unfortunately, uh, really annoyingly, Navajo is not one of those uh, languages where they have the uh, easy little YouTube videos where you can just go and have somebody pronounce it for you. Um, do better, internet. Do better. <laughs> And so uh, the rocks weren't formed by sediments or from flowing lava. They were formed at depth and cooled gradually in a largest mag- large-ish magma chamber. And then whatever was covering them has since eroded away, you know, in the past 2.5 to 3.5 billion years or so. Um, and so not entirely unsurprising. They found grains of olivine intergrown with pyroxene that could only be formed by slow cooling. That olivine is similar to olivine found in some meteorites that are thought to have originated on Mars, which I think is very cool um, to be able to really connect those rocks on Mars with those meteorites. And not only are they the best rocks for precise geochronology, they also show signs of having been altered by water. Rocks sampled from the floor of the crater underlie the delta sediments, and so their age will provide an upper limit for the delta's formation. When that delta was deposited is one of the main objectives of our sample return program because that will quantify when the lake was present and when the environmental conditions were present that could pos- possibly have been amenable to life, says Schuster, who is a member of NASA's science team for sample collection and an author on all three papers published in science on the latest data from Perseverance. One great value of the igneous rocks we collected is that they will tell us about when the lake was present in Yezero. We know it was there more recently than the igneous crater floor rocks formed, said co-author Kenneth Farley. This will address some major questions. When was Mars's climate conductive to lakes and rivers on the planet's surface? And when did it change to the very cold and dry conditions we see today? Schuster notes that there are are a couple of explanations for how the rocks could have formed. Either the rock cooled underground and came up from below somehow, or there was something like a magma lake that filled up the crater and cooled gradually, he said. Samples from a nearby site called Maaz, the Navajo world word for Mars, are also igneous but of a different composition. These might represent rocks from the upper layer of the lava lake, which would have cooled faster. They could also be from a later volcanic eruption, but again, both have signs of water alteration. The Maaz rocks feature pockets of minerals that may have condensed from briny salt, or from salty brine, I should say, while the Seita rocks reacted with carbonated water. There are a variety of different geochemical observations that can make, that we can make in these rocks when we return them to Earth. 
that will give us all sorts of information about that igneous environment, Schuster said. We can figure out when the rocks crystallized, which is one of the things that I'm most excited about for providing a delta timing constraint. But it also gives us information about when igneous activity was occurring in the planet's interior. Combined with satellite imagery, we can then relate that to some of the bigger picture, more regional igneous activity. Finally tonight, let's talk about scientific data itself. Yesterday, the 26th of August, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy dropped a major policy change, one that was actually not really uh, expected and is pretty impressive. The memorandum outlines that all institutions that receive federal funding will need to offer open access to their papers and data on the day that it is published. The change was announced by Alondra Nelson, acting head of the OSTP. This is a very big deal, TM. The U.S. government is the largest funder of scientific research in the world. The NIH funds more medical research than the rest of the top 20 organizations combined. But because capitalism is so deeply ingrained in the fabric of this country especially, but in many countries across the world, much of the research funded by taxpayer money has been hidden behind paywalls that enrich private publishers. This means that both the government and ordinary people often don't have access to the information that they themselves have funded. Two major developments have changed the landscape. The rise of open access journals, which we definitely use and um, are definitely helpful. And so that model is that they charge an upfront fee to the researchers in order to have the um, information be open access. And there is also the use of preprint servers, which were first used in physics and astronomy to host papers that are being submitted for peer review. And so I often reference those preprint servers in stories because it is the easiest way to get at that information. Because again, a lot of this research that I am referencing is behind paywalls with big ticket money. Um, you know, renting a paper can often be 15 or $20 for a single paper. And so, yeah. Of course, as with anything involving profit, there are people on both sides in the halls of Congress, for instance. Unsurprisingly, at least to me, this is not along party lines. Publishers support both sides of the aisle. And in fact, um, some of this has been, some of earlier open access uh, pushes have been vehemently opposed by uh, some supposed Democrats. 
And so I'm actually really impressed that this might become actual policy. Now, with the rise of these two new mechanisms and the adjustments that were made with COVID-related papers, the OSTP seems to have decided that the time is ripe and that the industry will survive despite the greater levels of access. And in case it wasn't abundantly obvious, I frankly think that it's ridiculous to put government-backed research behind a paywall and that it should never have been allowed. Um, The idea that private uh, publishers are uh, profiting from this is just incredibly ridiculous to me. But of course, I am very left of the center in American politics, and I consider most Democrats to be kind of center-right or uh, so-called Rockefeller Republicans in a more reasonable political spectrum. <laughs> um, and so uh, the OSTP is emphasizing the payoff of greater access to the society at large, which is very true. When research is widely available to other researchers and the public, it can save lives, provide policy policymakers with the tools to make critical decisions and drive more equitable outcomes across every sector of society, Nelson said in her announcement. Now, under the new policy, any agency that funds more than $100 million in grants has 180 days to submit a revised policy to OSTP, and smaller agency ha- agencies have a year. NIH already has a policy that research must be made open access after a year, but even that was bitterly contested at the time, again, by Democrats. So we'll see what kind of pushback this much more forceful requirement will face. Under the policy, the papers and data can still appear in subscription-only journals, but a copy must be made public. In addition, any data used must also appear in a public access database. By the end of 2024, agencies must have plans that all participants in the research and publications are also available in repositories. And all the data and documentation associated must have a digital identifier, such as a DOI. The policies must be implemented by the end of 2025. Now, publishers can still offer formatting, high-quality graphics, integration of media, and cross-referencing to justify their fees. But one of the largest wins would be access to underlying data. Currently, publishers require relevant data to be shared, but often there is no formal enforcement and many people ignore the requirement. Making this a condition of funding could be a game changer. Now, of course, one of the big things that we have to talk about with this will be enforcement. Um, And unfortunately, this is another thing that could quite possibly be swung by the fickle nature of Congress and by the use of, uh, frankly, uh, bribe money, uh, in my humble opinion, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from publishers, um, you know, this is not done in a vacuum. Uh, the people who oppose open access to research that is publicly funded are being funded themselves by publishers. And I mean, that's just, you know, an obvious thing. 
And so that is another reason why um, our political system is uh, very, very, very dysfunctional. Um, I said this was going to be a happy <laughs> um, show. And I think that, you know, this is a really great thing. And I think that it's, you know, there is enough momentum at this point um, from all of the things that have happened to make this, you know, kind of a reasonable thing. And I think that there is a lot of um, need and a lot of will will to have this be um, a thing that we do from now on. I mean, again, it just seems so straightforward. If you take money from the government and that money comes from taxpayers, then those taxpayers should be able to access the information. And so, yeah, I just don't understand why this isn't a no-brainer and hasn't been done forever ago. I mean, I do. We've talked about that already just a few minutes ago, but still. Um, so, yeah, I think it would make my life a lot easier, for one. <laughs> It'd make it much more easy for me to bring interesting and cool uh, data to you because I'd have better access to things. And so, um, yeah, I think it is a very cool thing and hopefully we will be able to uh, actually bring this to fruition and that there will actually be enforcement and this will be a revolution that will make science and technology knowledge much more available to the general public. So yeah, um, I have tried to uh, make tonight as uh, lighthearted and um, hopeful as possible because as the uh, sky above me <laughs> rumbles and dumps uh, copious amounts of uh, blessedly much needed rain, um, it, it can feel a little bit gloomy. So hopefully some of this was interesting to you and um, I will be back next week. I should be back next week. Um, <laughs> uh, work is a lot, um, but it should be okay. So I, um, yeah, have a good week. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.